0: Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. The Lacandon elders believe it has mystical powers, can cure the sick, and will stave off the deforestation that still threatens their people. Hewlett-Packard's discovery of unusual electrical and optimal phenomena in the item encouraged much speculation about its paranormal and otherworldly qualities. Some see it as a possible relic of a distant, lost civilization, even a repository of esoteric knowledge. One woman claimed it gave her a premonition of the death of President Kennedy in 1963. Others attribute mysterious deaths to the item. Many report experiencing visions and strange sounds whilst in its presence. A teenage girl found it in 1924, and ever since, the Crystal Skull has brought tragedy to those who own it, touch it, or are even near it. It's no wonder it has been called the Skull of Doom. I'm Darren Marlar and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… A man begins hearing strange noises, only later to discover something extraterrestrial embedded in his ear. On a hot, sunny summer Saturday in 1966, three young women in bathing suits left all of their belongings on a crowded beach and climbed aboard a motorboat on Lake Michigan. They were never seen again. A young boy braves a snowstorm, and walks miles to the nearest town to try and get medicine for his ailing mother and siblings. On the verge of giving up, a warm-hearted stranger walking his dog comes into sight. But who walks a dog in the middle of a winter storm? On a quiet street in California sits a stately brick house, swarming with paranormal activity. So much so, that Whaley House has twice been deemed the most haunted house in America. Does the mysterious ancient Crystal Skull of Doom really have mystical, paranormal properties? We begin with that story. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. Weird Darkness continues in just a moment. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the paranormal audiobook Your Haunted Lives Revisited by G. Michael Vasey. This collection of mystifying, scary, real life ghost stories are true tales of horrifying encounters with the supernatural and paranormal. They include visits from terrifying entities, haunted houses, strange and scary poltergeists, attempted possession, Ouija board nightmares, evil, demonic forces, haunted cemeteries, haunted places, and much, much more. They will chill you to the bone. These are supplemented with true stories of the editor's own strange and scary experiences. This terrific, terrifying collection of true, spooky stories of the paranormal will keep you looking over your shoulder and wide awake. Your Haunted Lives Revisited by G. Michael Vasey narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Get the audiobook free by signing up for a 30-day free trial of Audible and also hear a free sample of the audiobook on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. It was New Year's Day, 1924 when 17-year-old Anna Mitchell Hedges first saw it, an object of such awe-inspiring beauty and mystery that it would beguile the world for 70 years. Lowered into the gloom of an ancient Mayan pyramid at Lubinton, Belize, Anna saw a glimmer in the darkness. What she found was incredible, an exquisite life-size human skull crafted in pure quartz crystal. Anna was mesmerized by her discovery. The skull seemed to have an unearthly power and aura. The girl's father, renowned adventurer and explorer Frederick Mitchell-Hedges, was certain it was old, very old. Mitchell-Hedges had spent the previous year excavating the great thousand-year-old ruined Mayan city of Lubantin and thought the skull, which he labeled the Skull of Doom, a sinister ancient artifact used in religious rites. It is at least 3,600 years old, he said, and according to legend was used by the high priest of the Maya when performing esoteric rites. It is said that when he willed death with the help of the skull, death invariably followed. It has been described as the embodiment of all evil. I do not wish to try and explain this phenomenon," he said in his autobiography in 1954. Mitchell Hedges and his adopted daughter were not the only ones seduced by the skull's immense beauty and sinister, mysterious power. Later dubbed the weirdest gem in the world, those who have viewed the skull in person over the years attest to its strange ability to cast a spell on the beholder. After Frederick Mitchell Hedges' death in 1959, the then-middle-aged Anna would tour the crystal skull around the world allowing private viewings for paying customers. Countless TV programs, newspaper articles and books would be produced exploring the enigmatic artifact. Principally through Anna's tireless promotion, what was once an obscure curiosity would soon become one of the most famous strange objects in the world. Supporters would even start to claim the skull had supernatural powers. Could it really read minds? heal the sick and predict the future? Was it, as some suggested, an ancient computer encoded with the wisdom of the lost civilization of Atlantis, or even the work of aliens? The legend of the skull was growing, fueled by the enduring mystery of its origins. But despite Anna's claims, a persistent group of skeptics had begun to suspect the skull was a modern fake and Anna's story a fabrication. In 1970, in an attempt to dispel these doubts, Anna asked Hewlett Packard to conduct tests on the skull. As one of the world's leading experts in quartz crystal, the firm was best placed to determine just when and how the extraordinary object had been created. Their findings were a sensation. The skull was so finely constructed and finished that even the most modern tools would struggle to replicate it. According to one member of the team, the skull shouldn't even exist. For many, this was proof that the skull had been produced by an advanced civilization lost to history, a culture with technology beyond what we have today. Anna seemed vindicated. Could it be she really was in possession of a mystical, ancient artifact whose origins were lost in the mists of time? In the 1960s, Anna Mitchell Hedges entrusted the skull into the care of crystal expert Frank Dorland. Whilst quartz crystal itself cannot be dated, Dorland felt a microscopic study of the skull's workmanship might reveal more about its origins. To that end, in 1970, Hewlett-Packard was called in to examine the skull. The computer and electronics giant had some of the world's leading experts in quartz as well as high-tech microscopes and X-ray equipment. The firm's analysis of the skull only seemed to deepen its mystery. According to their experts, the skull was made from a single piece of pure natural quartz and would have taken years to carve, even with the most advanced diamond tools. But the firm felt it unlikely modern tools were used in its construction. Even under extreme magnification, They were unable to find any trace of machine tools. If it had been created using modern power tools, its maker had seemingly gone to great lengths to disguise it. Furthermore, the skull appeared to have been carved against the quartz crystal's natural grain, which they felt would have caused it to shatter if machined with powered tools. Some of the skull's other unusual electrical and optical properties also amazed the scientists at the firm's Santa Clara Labs. The type of quartz used was piezoelectric silicon dioxide, today used widely in modern electronics. Indeed, the skull had positive and negative polarity and was capable of producing an electrical charge when under mechanical stress. Even stranger was the skull's optical properties. It was designed in such a way that light channeled from below would be focused out through the eye sockets. It also featured an internal prism that reflected the skull's surroundings inside of the crystal. Hewlett Packard's discovery of these unique qualities did much to cement the skull's reputation as a deeply mysterious artifact. Had the Mayans created it with some lost technology? Or had they merely inherited the artifact From a much earlier and more advanced civilization forgotten by history. When Anna Mitchell Hedges found the skull at Labonten, she says the Maya workers in the expedition immediately recognized it as a sacred artifact of their people. Whilst no other crystal skulls have been found at any of the hundreds of well-documented official Mayan or Aztec archaeological sites, skulls were still a recurring motif in ancient Mesoamerica widely used in carvings and religious artworks. The Mayan god of death, a Puch, was depicted as a skull on a body of rotting flesh, and several Aztec gods are also represented as skulls. The walls of Chichen Itza, a 1,500-year-old Mayan city located in present-day Yucatan, are decorated with rows of carved skulls, replete with sinister grins. The Temple of the Skull at Palengua, another Mayan city, features a large carving of a toothy skull on one of its pillars. Later, Mexican cultures would use real human skulls inlaid with bright blue and black lignite, red oyster shell, and polished iron pyrite. The skulls were used to represent one of their most important creator gods, the smoking mirror of Tezcatilipoca. Today, belief in the power of skulls remains amongst what is left of the Mayan people. The Lacandon, still active around the ruins of Palenque, use crystal skulls in their religious rituals. One priest, Cayan Garcia, uses such a skull during ceremonies to worship Hachacum, the Mayan god of creation. The Lacandon elders believe the skull has mystical powers, can cure the sick and will stave off the deforestation that still threatens their people. Hewlett-Packard's discovery in 1970 of unusual electrical and optical phenomena in the skull encouraged much speculation about its paranormal and otherworldly qualities. The timing was perfect. The late 60s and early 70s saw the birth of the New Age movement, and the skull was seized upon as a possible relic of a distant, lost civilization even a repository of esoteric knowledge. Several purported paranormal qualities have been attributed to the skull over the years. Anna Mitchell Hedges herself once claimed it gave her a premonition of the death of President Kennedy in 1963. Others attribute mysterious deaths to the skull. But the most common accounts are of visions and strange sounds. Frank Dorland entrusted the skull by Anna in the late 60s reported numerous odd experiences whilst in its presence. He would see images of ancient temples in the skull's eyes, Lubantan at the height of the Mayan civilization. Alongside the visions, he could hear metallic bells, singing, whispered voices, and the sound of icy mountain streams. Dorland, who started out as an engineer before becoming a noted art conservator, went on to write extensively about the powers of rock crystal. He believed the skull's powers had a scientific explanation, something he called biocrystallography. Dorland did not think the visions were paranormal phenomena, but a natural synchronicity between the crystal and the human brain. In 1988, he said, the mass of crystal in some way triggered certain reflexes in the brain to make you think that you were tasting things hearing things or seeing things. Could Dorland be right? Was some property in the crystal itself triggering hallucinations in those receptive to its energy? Whilst exhibiting it in San Francisco in the early 70s, Dorland buttressed his theory by gathering accounts from dozens of other people who experienced similar visions. However, Many of those experiences did come from observers predisposed to the skull's supposed supernatural powers, who were often deep in meditation and highly receptive to visions. Could it be they were simply bamboozled by the skull's curious optical qualities? Anna Mitchell Hedges' romantic account of finding the awesome Skull of Doom amongst the ruins of an ancient Mayan city when she was just a girl captured the imagination of millions of people around the world. However, a cursory study of her claims reveals a terrible truth. At best, her story is heavily embellished and, in all likelihood, entirely fictional. Frederick Mitchell Hedges makes no mention of the skull until his 1954 autobiography, Danger My Alley, where he declines to state its origins. Mitchell Hedges was a self-publicist and notorious teller of tall tales, so for him to fail to mention his most extraordinary of finds is somewhat curious. In fact, no reference to the skull exists anywhere prior to a 1936 British anthropological journal where it was reported to be not in Mitchell Hedges' possession at all but that of an art dealer called Sidney Burney. A note in the archives of the British Museum states the skull was then put up for auction in 1943, failed to sell, but was eventually purchased in 1944 for the sum of 400 pounds. The buyer? Frederick Mitchell Hedges. Was the whole story of finding the skull in a ruined Mayan city 20 years earlier a fabrication? None of the written accounts by those who took part in the expedition in the mid-1920s contains any reference to the presence of the teenage Anna or the discovery of the skull. Indeed, Frederick Mitchell-Hedges himself, in his extensive writings and lecture tours following the dig, also fails to mention Anna's presence or the discovery of the skull. Likewise, a 1927 British Museum report on the dig also contains no reference to the skull or the presence of the teenaged Anna. Whilst there are numerous photographs of Mitchell Hedges, Thomas Gann, Lady Richmond Brown and other members of the expedition in and around the ruins of Lubonton, not a single one features Anna or the skull. The sad truth is Anna Mitchell Hedges not only made up her incredible story about finding the skull in the ruins of Lubonton, she was never there at all. The genesis of her lie appears to begin not in the 1920s, but the 1960s, shortly after she came into possession of the skull and when she began to correspond with art restorer Frank Dorland. It is in her letters to Dorland that the whole legend of the crystal skull is born. We find the first reference to Anna being present at the dig and the first reference to her finding the skull. After several further embellishments, it eventually evolved into the story she would continue to tell for the rest of her life why such an elaborate lie? One possibility is that Anna's latter-day fiction about personally finding the skull was simply designed to reinforce her ownership claims to the artifact in light of her subsequent attempts to sell it. Another possibility is the abiding influence of Frederick Mitchell Hedges himself. The archaeologist was widely regarded as slapdash and reckless, and especially prone to gross exaggerations about his exploits. His writings are replete with absurd tales of Atlantis, giant sea creatures, and personally arm-wrestling gorillas. Perhaps, if nothing else, Anna, who Mitchell Hedges adopted in 1919 when she was 10 years old, was simply continuing her father's habit of spinning outrageous yarns. Like so much in her life, Anna Mitchell Hedges attributed her amazing longevity to the power of the skull. On this point, at least, she may have had a point. Outliving many of her critics, Anna finally died in 2007 at the grand old age of 100. Shortly before her death, she gifted the skull to her young husband Bill Haumann. Like Anna, Haman would continue to firmly believe in the skull's authenticity. But within a year, the matter would be settled once and for all. Jane McLaren Walsh, an anthropologist at the Smithsonian, had taken an interest in crystal skulls after one was anonymously gifted to the museum in 1992. Walsh felt it doubtful that they were genuine Mayan or Aztec artifacts, as there was no record of either culture-working crystal. Although the Mitchell Hedges skull is by far the most beautifully worked crystal skull in the world, it is not unique. Similar skulls exist in the British Museum and the Musée de la in Paris. What intrigued Walsh was she could find no reference to these artifacts prior to the second half of the 19th century when they suddenly start appearing in the shop of a French antique and curio dealer with a penchant for Mexican art named Eugene Bobin. The parish and British skulls were both, it turns out, from Bobin's shop. But had he acquired genuine ancient artifacts or faked them? The British Museum and the Smithsonian teamed up to find out. Like Hewlett-Packard in 1970, they were unable to date the actual quartz, but the team did have far more sophisticated tools at their disposal to determine how the skull had been produced. Using an electron microscope, X-ray crystallography, and CT scans, the results were definitive. Telltale tool marks showed the skulls had been produced using modern jeweler's equipment, first available in the 19th century. Trade in fake pre-Columbian artifacts was common at the time, and it seems Boban had tried to cash in on the craze by commissioning the Skulls, likely from artisans in Germany who specialized in working with Quartz. But what of the Skull of Doom? In 2008, Bill Hammond, the Skull's new guardian, took it to the office of Jane McLaren Walsh for her assessment. Whether this was brave or foolish is a matter of debate but either way, Hammond did not like the answers. Using the same advanced tests applied to the Paris and British Museum skulls, Walsh was able to determine beyond any doubt that the legendary Mitchell Hedges skull was also a modern fake, likely an improved copy of the London skull. Science had finally solved one of the greatest mysteries of the 20th century. But that wasn't the end of the story for everyone. Bill Hommen's faith, for one, remained intact. Hommen reasoned that if the skull was made with modern tooling, this was just evidence that the ancients had advanced technology unknown to history. That's the power of the Skull of Doom in a nutshell. Wherever it came from, however it was made, its ability to cast a spell on the beholder remains undiminished. El Paso, Texas, December 1, 2014, approximately 1.30 in the morning. I was asleep in my bed on my day off from work. Suddenly, I got the sensation of floating over the bed. I awoke and instantly dropped to the bed. Upon awakening, I remember hearing voices. I assumed the voices were what woke me up and someone was outside. I lived on seven acres and my house was far back from the road. In order to hear voices meant that somebody was in my yard. I grabbed my gun and went to the window, which was open as it was a cool night and I didn't want to run the AC. I sat and listened for a few minutes, but heard nothing. I decided to check on my daughters to see if they were awake, so I placed my gun on the bed and crept back to their rooms. Both girls were asleep. I returned to my bed and slept with my gun by my side the rest of the night. The next morning, I awoke with discomfort in my chest along the bottom of the sternum. It wasn't painful, just like something was there. I know that when you reach your 40s, the cartilage in you will begin to ostracize. I felt my chest, and I felt a triangular-shaped structure in my chest and just assumed that it had just fused strangely. I'd just never noticed this before, and it was sticking out raising the skin around it. The discomfort lasted about one and a half to maybe two weeks and slowly dissipated during that time. I dismissed all of this as just mere coincidence. I didn't believe in any sort of paranormal thing. December 3rd, 2016, 1.37 in the morning. I was asleep in my bed. My wife had moved back in with me. We'd been separated for about eight years, along with her two dogs, Chihuahuas, Alex, the white one, and who slept between us, and Cece, the black one who slept on my wife's side of the bed. I awoke suddenly to the sensation of floating above the bed. Immediately, I felt the drop and landed on Alex, who was under the covers. Both times I landed above the covers. She yelped very loudly and woke everybody in the house. My wife asked what happened. I don't know, I replied. I landed on the dog. Was I floating above the bed? She replied that she didn't know as she reached for Alex to comfort her. The next morning, I felt this discomfort in my ear, which lasted about four and a half weeks. Once again, it wasn't terrible, it just felt like a mild earache that wouldn't go away. November 30, 2017, 7.30 in the morning in Tucumcari, New Mexico. I'm a truck driver, and I stopped at the Love's Travel Center for the night. My younger daughter was riding with me. We got up in the morning, went in to take showers and get breakfast. We returned to the truck to eat our breakfast and as I began to say a prayer for the food, I heard this beeping noise and stopped praying. I told my daughter, I think your watch is beeping. She looked at her watch and said, no, my watch is on silent. I told her that I could hear a beeping noise from somewhere in the truck. She stated that she didn't hear anything. I noticed that as I moved around the truck trying to find what was beeping, the aspect to the sound never changed, nor did the intensity of the noise. I told her, I think it's coming from my ear. She'd been getting over a cold but still had a cough. She coughed kind of loud and my ear rang very loud. I jammed my finger in my ear while exclaiming, ah! She asked what happened and I told her that when she coughed, it made my ear ring. I told her that when she was talking, it was making my ear ring also. It literally sounds like someone speaking into a microphone while standing too close to the speakers. We had a load to pick up in Las Lunas, New Mexico, going to a Walmart in El Paso, and then we were going to take a few days off. I told her that when we got to Walmart, I was going to pick up some earplugs because the ringing was bad. We made our delivery and went into the store to get earplugs. As we were walking through the store, they announced something over the PA. My daughter was on my left side and I grabbed my ear and bent down. My ear rang out really loud. My daughter asked, what happened? I don't know, I said. When they got on the intercom, it made my ear ring. She asked, is that what the noise was? What noise, I asked, not believing she could hear the noise from my ear. She mimicked the noise and I exclaimed, how can you hear what's going on in my ear? She replied, I don't know, but I heard it. I told her that I needed to buy one of those scopes that the doctors use to look in my ear. She told me that Walmart sells them over in the pharmacy section. We bought an otoscope, and when we got home, she looked in my left ear and found a very shiny metallic object just above the eardrum attached to the ear canal with three legs on each side. I've shown this to many people and no one knows what it is. I'm hesitant to see a doctor for fear that they may be required to report this. The beeping is constant, 24 hours a day, it's driving me crazy and I have to carry earplugs with me in case I go to a loud area and it begins to ring. I'm hoping to someday find help to determine what this device is for and who put it there. Keep listening – there's more Weird Darkness to come! So I've been sleeping on a MyPillow for a few weeks now and I've been telling you that my sleep has improved drastically. So what are you waiting for? When are you going to jump on board and start experiencing the kind of restorative sleep you need in your life? Are you waiting for a better offer? Well, Your wait's over because if you go to MyPillow.com right now you can take advantage of the MyPillow 4-Pack offer. It's two premium MyPillows and two go-anywhere pillows and half off. Just go to MyPillow.com, click the four-pack special, and then use my promo code WEIRD. On a hot, sunny summer Saturday, three young women in bathing suits left all their belongings on a crowded beach and climbed aboard a motorboat on Lake Michigan. It was noon, July 2, 1966, at Indiana Dunes State Park, about an hour around the lake from Chicago. A couple whose beach blanket was beside the young women's watched as the motorboat glided away, then waited all day for them to return. They didn't know the girls but thought it was odd that they would leave their purses unattended on a day when the park was packed with more than 9,000 holiday weekend sunbathers and swimmers. When the couple left at dusk, they pointed out the abandoned blanket to a park ranger. They told him that the young women had left on a boat that was operated by a young man with a head full of dark, curly hair. The ranger bundled up the belongings and stored them away. A day and a half later, July 4th, Park Superintendent Bill Svedek took a call from a Chicago man inquiring about his daughter, Patty Blau, 19. She would not been heard from since leaving home for the Indiana Dunes with two friends Saturday morning. Svetic opened the blanket bundle that had been left on the beach and found Blau's wallet, keys and clothing. He also found clothes and purses belonging to Blau's friends, Renee Bruhl, 19, and Ann Miller, 21. Miller's 1955 Buick was still sitting in the beach parking lot. Svedek assured Harold Blau that his daughter would turn up she'd probably just had a little bit too much fun over the holiday weekend. But Patty didn't show up. And neither did her friends. An investigation began belatedly as scuba divers scoured the lake and searchers on foot and horseback combed the sprawling sands and woods of the park, which stretches along 45 miles of the Indiana coastline. But no sign of the young women was ever found. In fact, they remain missing 48 years later, and their fate remains one of the enduring unsolved mysteries of the region. What happened to the three young women? No one will probably ever know, but it's possible that there are still some clues that might stand out when we trace their movements on the day of their vanishing, and even in the days that came before. On the morning of July 2nd, Ann Miller drove her four-door Buick and picked up Patty Blau from her family's home in Westchester, Illinois, around 8 a.m. Patty told her mother that they planned to return home early in the evening since their friend, Renee Bruhl, was coming with them and she needed to be back in time to make supper for her husband. Anne and Patty picked up Renee from her work on West Fulton on Chicago's west side and then stopped at a drugstore to pick up some suntan lotion. The women arrived at the Indiana Dunes State Park at approximately 10 a.m. and parked in the lot, and the women hiked to a spot that was about 100 yards from the Lake Michigan shoreline. The nearby couple stated that the girls left their belongings on the beach at noon and they entered the water together. The witnesses then saw them speaking to an unidentified man who was operating a 14- to 16-foot-long white boat with blue interior and outboard motor. They were unsure of the time when the men approached them. The couple described all this to the park ranger around dusk when they noticed that the women's belongings were still sitting on the beach. The women had gotten onto the boat, they said, and had headed west with the driver. Anne, Patty, and Renee have never been seen again. Renee Brule left a large beach towel. Shorts, blouse, cigarettes, suntan lotion, 25 cents and her purse which contained about $55 in checks sitting on the beach. The other women also left clothing, purses, and personal items in the sand. Those belongings were collected by the ranger on the night of their disappearance and stored in the park superintendent's office until July 4th when Patty's father called the park, searching for his daughter and her friends. The park rangers soon learned that missing persons reports had been filed for all three women over the weekend in Illinois by their families. The rangers searched the park and located Anne's Buick in the parking lot. Her car keys had been left with her purse on the beach, but other items of clothing and personal effects were still inside the car. The car was still parked in its original spot from July 2nd. No one had moved it. The park rangers soon got other law enforcement agencies involved, including the U.S. Coast Guard. The search was in full swing by July 5, three days after the girls had vanished. Other witnesses who were in the park that day came forward with conflicting stories, but authorities came to believe that the first witnesses' reports were the most reliable. The three women were seen boarding a boat, and they did not return to the beach. The search for the three women continued around the clock. It was extended to a six-mile stretch of beach west of the state park near Ogden Dunes later in the week. More witnesses came forward that substantiated the initial report that the women got into a boat with an unidentified man. Leader accounts claimed that he was in his early twenties with a tanned complexion and dark wavy hair. He was wearing a beach jacket at the time. A beachgoer who was taking home movies on July 2 offered his films to investigators. The search was narrowed down to two boats after the detectives watched the footage. One of them was a 16-foot runabout with a three-hulled design, which was operated by a man who did fit the description of the man seen with the girls. Three women who matched descriptions of the missing girls were seen aboard the boat in the footage. The second boat was identified as a 26-foot cabin cruiser with three men and three women aboard. The cabin cruiser was seen at around 3 p.m., three hours after the women got aboard the smaller boat. After reports came in that Anne, Patty, and Renee were seen walking on the beach and eating after this time, investigators came to believe that they'd been dropped off on the beach west of the state park by the driver of the smaller boat, while he drove back to retrieve his two male friends and the cabin cruiser. While on the second beach, the girls were reportedly approached by another unidentified man, who accompanied them to the cabin cruiser. Witnesses stated that this second boat was equipped with a radio and telephone antenna, but apparently did not have a name painted on its stern. The final sighting has never been confirmed, though. The authorities do not consider it reliable. The search went on, but lead after lead went nowhere. A psychic that was brought into the case claimed to have a vision of a Lake Michigan cabin where the women's bodies were buried. An extensive search of the property believed to be the place seen by the psychic did not uncover any evidence. However, detectives did point out that the shifting sand dunes may have buried any possible evidence deeply under the ground. Investigators began looking into the backgrounds of the three women in an attempt to discover if their disappearances could have been voluntary, and it was then that things got even murkier and stranger. In Renee Bruhl's purse, the authorities found a letter addressed to her husband Jeff. The couple had been married for just 15 months in July 1966, but in the letter she asked for a divorce. She said that she felt her husband spent too much time working on cars with his friends and didn't seem to have time for her. Her husband, though, told the police he was not aware of any problems in their marriage at the time of his wife's disappearance. Her family agreed with the statement telling investigators that they believed that Renee had written the note in a moment of anger and never gave it to Jeff because she had changed her mind about the divorce. But that might not have been all there was to the story. All three women were friends, drawn together by their love of horses. Patty and Anne met while boarding their horses at the same Illinois stable. Renee was a classmate of Patty's at Proviso West High School in Maywood, Illinois, and she had completed a one-year course in medical technology after graduation. The women often rode together, and often met at a tavern in Hodgkins, Illinois after their outings. According to a theory created by Dick Wiley, a reporter and photographer who chased crime in northwest Indiana for the Gary Post Tribune and the Chicago Sun-Times during the 50s and 60s, the events leading to their disappearance began there. Both Patty and Anne were single and Wiley believes that they fell for married men that they'd met at the tavern. Both got pregnant. Later statements from some of Ann's friends claim that she was three months pregnant in July 1966 and mentioned going to a home for unwed mothers prior to her disappearance. But did she have plans to end the pregnancy? And what about Patty? Was she pregnant as well? Abortion was illegal in Illinois in 1966. According to Dick Wiley, some Chicago women who found themselves in trouble visited a house just across the state border in Gary, where a husband and wife team, Helen and Frank Largo, performed backroom abortions. Wiley has linked the Largos, now dead, to a floating abortion mill that operated on a houseboat offshore in Lake Michigan. He believes Ann and Patty had arranged abortions on that boat on July 2nd and they were ferried there by Ralph Largo Jr., a nephew of Helen and Frank Largo. He was seen at the park that day and matched the description of the man last seen with the girls on the beach. Wiley believes that the women got to the larger boat, but something went wrong with one of the procedures and the other two were killed so that no witnesses would be left behind. The girls had left their belongings on the beach because they expected to be back in 90 minutes, Wiley said. The theory has never been confirmed. The younger Largo died in 2009, but it is plausible. However, unless a body turns up, it's likely to always remain just a theory. And it's not the only one, of course. There have been many unconfirmed sightings of the three women over the years, but no solid leads have ever surfaced. The boats that they were allegedly on in July 1966 have never been located, and the men operating them have never been solidly identified. But people have continued to speculate, especially when it comes to their connection with horses. Anne, Patty, and Renee often rode at the Tricolor Stables in Palatine, Illinois, which were owned by George Jane and his brother Silas Jane who were involved in fraudulent activities, murders, and worse in the mid-1960s. Cheryl Ann Rood, a young woman associated with the horse market, was killed at the Tricolor Stables in June 1965 by a car bomb that had been meant for George Jane. George had asked Cheryl to move his Cadillac from the stable entrance, and the bomb exploded. Some believe that perhaps Patty and Anne Renee, or one or any combination of them, may have witnessed the bomb being planted. However, this does not explain why anyone would have waited an entire year before silencing them. Or does it? In March 1966, Patty received a facial injury that she never explained. One of her friends claimed she made an offhanded remark about it and mentioned trouble with syndicate people. But no proof of any trouble exists. There was a connection between the Janes and the missing women, though. Both men's telephone numbers were found in their belongings after their disappearances there's no question that the two men were deeply involved in crime. George was shot to death in 1970, and Silas was later convicted of conspiracy in his brother's murder and sent to prison. He died in 1987. He is also a suspect in the disappearance and probably murder of candy heiress Helen Brock. In 1997, a man named James Blatio was charged with planting the 1965 car bomb that killed Cheryl Ann Roode at the Janes' stables. But neither he nor the Janes have been positively linked to the disappearances of Ann, Patty, and Renee. It's hard not to speculate, though, that any of them might have been involved in some way. Silas Jane reportedly told a sheriff that he had three bodies buried beneath his residence after the 1966 disappearances. Investigators took his claim seriously and planned to search the property, but the sheriff involved was killed in a farming accident before the search took place. For whatever reason, it was not pursued after that, leading some to wonder if the claim was true. What happened to three pretty young women in July 1966? We'll likely never know. The case is not unsolvable, but without any bodies or any solid new leads, it's unlikely that the truth will ever be known. My grandmother told me the story that happened to her father when he was a boy of only eight years old. It was the winter of 1909 in the deep woods of Maine that my great-grandpa Jack lived with his parents and three younger siblings. His father was away for work for a few weeks, so Jack had become the man of the house. He was responsible for helping his mom, Ellie, care for the younger kids and keep the fire burning strong in the wood stove. On this day, he was helping her hang wet laundry to freeze-dry on the line. Ellie wasn't feeling so well, so Jack took over for her. Later, when she entered their modest, tiny little cabin, he found her passed out on the floor his mom had become ill, and in the next few days, so did Jack's siblings. She told him that he must go to town to fetch a doctor and get them some medicine. The town was miles away and he would have to walk as they had no form of transportation. It was bitter cold and the snow was somewhat deep on the long, narrow road to town. But he had no choice, he had to bring back some help somehow. Jack bundled up as warm as possible and packed food and water for his early morning journey. As he prepared to leave, he felt the desperation in his mother's straining voice. Ellie said, "'Be careful, my sweet boy. I love you.'" Jack was a strong boy, and the first few miles seemed somewhat easy, but before long his feet became numb and cold as the fluffy white snowflakes began to gather on his shoulders. Jack pushed on for what seemed like hours until exhaustion hit him hard. His toes, fingers, and nose were frozen, so he rested himself on a broken tree trunk and tried to nibble the food he'd packed slowly. He painfully wanted to take a nap, but was told by his mother that sleep would bring death out there in the winter forest. Suddenly, he spotted a large golden dog who ran to his side and nudged his leg for a pat on the head. Behind the dog, A very tall man stepped out from the woods and gave Jack a big smile. Hello there, the man shouted. Jack felt instant relief deep inside. He greeted the handsome, red-haired man jumping to his feet with excitement. They quickly began to chat away, although Jack said later he didn't really remember what they had discussed on the journey ahead. The man told Jack his name was Sam and his dog was JoJo. They walked at a quick pace through the storm sharing several conversations for a long while, but yet Jack no longer felt tired or even cold at all. He actually felt quite warm. The snow was coming down hard from the darkening sky. Jack thought it strange, though, that Sam only wore a leather coat with strange fur around the neck, hardly winter attire. He felt so at home with Sam and knew somehow he was safe. Finally, the town appeared faintly in front of them, Jack exclaimed, we're finally here! He watched as the dog JoJo ran quickly ahead and then turned to Sam in excitement. But Sam had unbelievably vanished. Jack was completely stunned and deeply confused, but he had to keep walking forward. He made it into town thinking all the while about Sam disappearing so suddenly and not even saying goodbye he soon found a doctor but unfortunately the storm delayed them for several days. Sadly, upon returning home, Jack discovered his mother and siblings had all passed away. Jack was absolutely devastated, as was his heartbroken father who finally made it home. He ended up raising Jack alone to adulthood. Eventually, Jack met my great-grandmother and married soon after falling head over heels with her this is where the story gets even stranger. Their first-born son was named Sam, after the unforgettable man that saved my grandpa's life as a child. He, too, was a redhead, a good-looking guy, just like my grandfather. He was incredibly kind in many ways and adored his sister, my grandmother, to pieces. Sam loved to fly planes, but was forbidden to do so by his mother. So, secretly, he trained to be a pilot and in 1941 died on a solo flight at the young age of 20. My great-grandmother could never speak his name again until she claimed to see him while on her deathbed many years later. He was smiling at her. Was Sam the Guardian the same person as Sam the Pilot? If so, how is that possible? This story has always fascinated me, and I hope it fascinates others as well. Located at 2476 San Diego Avenue, the Whaley House may not look like anything special, but it's twice been called the most haunted house in America. Once by Time Magazine, the other by the Travel Channel series America's Most Haunted. So what makes this unassuming, two-story brick house in historic Old Town San Diego such a focus of supernatural activity? The house has a long and at times tragic history. Over the years, it has acted as a granary, San Diego's first commercial theater, and the county courthouse, in addition to housing the Whaley family from 1857 until 1885, and again between 1909 and 1953. Built by family patriarch Thomas Whaley with bricks from his own brickyard, the Whaley house was the first two story brick building in San Diego and remains a classic example of mid-19th century Greek Revival architecture. In 1960, it was added to the State's Register of Historic Landmarks and opened to the public as a museum. To find the origins of the Whaley House hauntings, you have to go back farther than the house itself. Before the bricks were laid, the ground where the Whaley House would be built was used as a makeshift gallows. In 1852, James Yankee Jim Robinson was convicted of attempted larceny and hanged in the back of a wagon over the spot where the house now stands. According to newspaper accounts at the time, Yankee Jim kept his feet on the wagon as long as he could, and when he was finally pulled off, he swung back and forth like a pendulum until he strangled to death. Thomas Whaley witnessed the execution, but didn't let that deter him from buying the property to build his family home on in 1857. Almost as soon as the family moved in, though, they began to hear heavy footsteps moving through the house, which Thomas Whaley said sounded like they were made by the boots of a large man. Eventually, the family concluded that these footsteps must have been the work of the ghost of Yankee Jim. Yankee Jim wasn't the last death that the Whaley House would see, either. The Whaley's infant son, Thomas Whaley Jr., died of scarlet fever in the house when he was only 18 months old. Years later, in 1882, the Whaley daughter, Violet, married a man who turned out to be a con artist who left in the midst of their honeymoon. A dejected Violet returned to San Diego without her husband. She never fully recovered from the scandal, and in 1885, she committed suicide in the Whaley house by shooting herself in the chest with her own father's gun. She left behind a suicide note composed of lines from the Thomas Hood poem, Bridge of Sighs. Mad from life's history, swift to death's mystery, glad to be hurled anywhere, anywhere out of this world. Over the years, plenty of visitors to the house have encountered ghostly phenomena within its walls, Thomas Whaley's ghost is often seen, especially on the Upper Landing. Other encounters include his wife, Anna Whaley, in the downstairs rooms or garden. Even the Whaley's dog, Dolly, gets in on the act, with one parapsychologist claiming to see a dog running down the hall into the dining room, while another visitor felt something brush against his leg, perhaps like a dog. The Whaley House and its attendant hauntings have been featured on a variety of television series, including America's Most Haunted and Ghost Adventures, and the list of people who claim to have witnessed spectral phenomena extends to celebrities. Comedian Tom Green called out to the spirits in one room and was answered by a child's voice, which was caught on tape. While Regis Philbin visited the Whaley House in 1964, and saw what he thought was the ghostly presence of Anna Whaley, a filmy white apparition that appeared in front of her portrait. The television personality was later said, "...you know a lot of people poo-poo it because they can't see it, but there was something going on in that house." In 2012, the horror film The Haunting of Whaley House used the house and its history as its basis, though the movie was actually shot at the Bembridge House in Long Beach. The Whaley House and Yankee Jim are even mentioned briefly in the second Hellboy animated movie, Blood and Iron. These days, the Whaley House is a museum that provides plenty of historical information for believers and skeptics alike. Yet, the Sea of Our Heritage organization that currently operates the property doesn't neglect its haunted history, either. Late-night ghost hunting tours are offered on the last weekend of every month, with extra tours available around Halloween. Of course. Thanks for listening to Weird Darkness. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And do you ever worry that maybe some situation or some problem you're dealing with might never get better? Well, if you're dealing with stress, there is a free download on the Weird Darkness site, no matter your age or stage of life. I mean, we're all looking for ways to reduce stress in our lives. We live in a harried, hurried, fast-paced world and stress is coming at us from all directions. Well, you can get this free eight-part series to de-stress your life. It's free, as I mentioned. You can download it right now, but it's only available through the rest of this month. So grab it now while you still have a chance. You can find it in the right-hand column at WeirdDarkness.com. How would you like to win the Weird Darkness prize pack? Well, It comes with a Weird Darkness t-shirt, coffee mug, tote bag, and Weird Darkness stickers, and it's free to register to win. All you have to do is follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the pinned post at the top of the profile. Then I'll choose a random tweet at the end of the month and announce the winner in the podcast. So be sure to jump on Twitter and follow at Weird Darkness, and also be sure to retweet that top-pinned tweet in order to get registered to win the Weird Darkness prize pack. If you like the show, please share a link to this episode on all your social media, tell your friends about the show, and please leave a rating and review – I might read your review here in the podcast. Onan1974 in the Philippines said, Great. Great short stories. Bonnie Bonnet said, overproduced too much music and drama irritating and then crazy cowgirl says weird darkness rocks i love this podcast it's great spooky and at times very scary everything paranormal and things that come awake in the night thanks for keeping me entertained darren i enjoy this podcast so much well thank you i enjoy podcasting it it's one of my favorite things to do if you would like to support the show you can become a patron Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and also early access to the Weird But True video series. Right now, only patrons can watch the Weird But True video, the BBC's fake paranormal newscast that terrified a nation. All the rest of the Weird But True episodes can be seen by anybody, including you, and you can find them right now on the Weird But True page at WeirdDarkness.com. Patrons also get exclusive content, like chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. In fact, the audiobook Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis it is finally coming to its dramatic conclusion this weekend. So if you want to hear the entire audiobook of Into Darkness, now's the time to become a patron. Because Once that book hits store shelves, once it's available to purchase online, it disappears from my Patreon page. And the new audiobook that I'm getting ready to begin narrating is called The Chilling True Terror of the Black-Eyed Kids, a monster compilation by Jima Govesi. Really looking forward to getting started on that one. You can become a patron right now for as little as 5 bucks a month at WeirdDarkness.com. Also on the website, you can get the free mobile app. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. You can join the Weirdo Family social group get stories that I didn't use in the podcast, and a whole lot more. There is something new posted every day at WeirdDarkness.com. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Terrors of Whaley House was written by Orin Gray. The Crystal Skull's Stare of Death was posted at TheUnredacted.com. Alien Ear Implant was posted at PhantomsAndMonsters.com. Young Women Lost was written by Troy Taylor. And A Warm Meeting in Deadly Winter was written by Piper Lee and submitted directly to WeirdDarkness.com. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we are coming out of the dark, remember Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me… In the Weird Darkness… This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by Send Out Cards. You can mail a real, personalized greeting card without leaving the house or going out to buy stamps. You can choose from the hundreds of existing cards on the website or create one of your own completely from scratch using your own photos and message. And you can even use your own handwriting and signature if you wish. All on the website. I use this product daily and I believe in it so much that well, I've set it up for free for your first card so you can try it out right now at Send Out Cards. cards.com slash weird."